Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We made this. Hey guys, this is Stephen Williams. I played Mr. X on the X-Files, and you're listening to X-Cast and Deny Everything. everyone to the X-Cast. The truth is in here. It's been a while since I've said that, actually. It's been a good few months. I'm Tony Black, your host, and it's season four! Woohoo! Just woken up the neighbourhood there, and uh, I've also kept awake my guest for episode one of our season four coverage, Mr. Darren Mooney. Had to be you, Darren. We did we did, we did, did plenty of season three together. We did Talitha Kumi. You had to be back on for the beginning of season four. Thank you very much. And we're picking up right where we left off. We're standing in the middle of a quarry as a menacing man wanders towards us. But don't worry, we're going to spend a whole five minutes running through that quarry in order to evade him. Yep, with with some sort of Mark Snowy sort of techno action music going <laughs> yeah. on at the same time. So yeah, we're talking Heronvolk today, the, uh, the opening episode of the fourth season. This episode aired originally on October the 4th, 1996. It was written... By Chris Carter, of course, and directed by R.W. Goodwin. And obviously, uh, this episode features or picks up, as you say, after the cliffhanger of um, uh, Talitha Kumi, where Mulder has the stiletto in his hand. He's protecting Jeremiah Smith. Scully's sort of there because she, you know, did crop up occasionally in the season three finale. We, we talked as we talked about before, and the alien shapeshifter bounty hunter is stalking towards them, and uh, obviously. They do get out of that, and then uh, off go Mulder and Jeremiah for a nice little road trip into Canada, where they discover a little bit more about bees, clones, and, well, more confusion. So what <laughs> you're saying is it's basically the X-Files version of, like, you know, planes, trains, and automobiles, you know? It's like yeah. <laughs> rip-roaring cross-country adventure. It's like Easy Rider, but with, like, a government... One of them's a government bureaucrat. The other one is the son of a man who helped plot the alien colonization of the planet. Together, they're going to Canada. Somebody needs to cut a trailer with that, seriously, you know, for this episode. Put it onto YouTube, it'd be gold. I'd say, but that's it. It's like Scully's also, you know, off doing some, you know, FBI scientific investigation stuff, trying to tie together all the mythology threads. Um, This is the poster child for Scully ditching, I think is what they call it. Mm. Um, It's like... It really is. The your example. It's like if you want to explain Scully ditching in a single episode, it's like, hey, Mulder's on a boat and then he's in a car. And Scully is doing the actual work. She is. She is doing the work in this episode for sure. But yeah, I uh, that's 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 essentially the the, the meat uh, the meat of the the main story. And uh, as we always do, 
Season four of the Xcast is going to be the same format, the same formula. You know what we do by now if you're listening. Uh, so, uh, Darren, what would you give the season four premiere, Heron Volk, out of ten? And what did you think of the episode? This is interesting because I don't necessarily love this. I think I'd like it a bit more than most, but I also suspect that my rating will seem borderline cruel using those metrics. This will be a solid like 4.5 or 5 out of 10 for me. Uh, which is, you know, I mean, it, the whole point of having a 10-point scale is that you use the entire thing. So this is like a mid-tier sort of episode, which is a shame because I think we both came off like Talitha Kumi. I think we both gave it like 8, 8.5, 9 out of 10, mm. which mm. was sort of like a very high grade. Heronvoke is not going to, is not, as, as you've already heard, is not getting that. And the thing is, there are parts of Heron Vogue that I like, and we're going to talk about those, like, as we go through the podcast, or as we go through the episode, as we break it down. But the problems with the episode are kind of fundamental and baked into it, in that it's hard to watch it without those. There are episodes that have problems, and you can sort of sidestep them, or you can brush them aside, or you can forget about them, you can say they're not really important, or they're individual scenes, or they're sort of isolated. The problems with Hair Invoke are more structural, in that, and again, we're going to talk about this in more depth later on, I suspect, but basically Hair Invoke is the point in the show at which it feels like the wheels have like disconnected from anything resembling track and are just spinning in midair. Which is a shame, because like we talked about like the third season finale, uh, Tulitakumi, as an episode which kind of codified a lot of what was being implied up until that point. It was the episode where you got this idea of colonization happening, the idea that the conspirators were working with aliens to take over the planet and that they were going to like, you know, they wanted to insulate themselves and create like a social hierarchy. Heronvoke does a very weird thing where on a number of small levels it gives you lots of tiny information. Like, there are a lot of parts of Heronvoke which will be, like, iconic and recognisable and people will associate with the X-Files. So, you know, the, the, the children of the whatever that weird thing they're growing is, for example, the, the clones, <laughs> the blonde hair, the Samantha Mulders, but even the bees, for example, which are an iconic part of the X-Files lore, an essential part of it. You know, the cock-blocking bees that are essentially, like, set up, like, a year ahead of production, two years ahead of release, <laughs> which is some very good foreshadowing uh, on the part of Chris Carter. But, I mean, it has these parts, but they don't, add up to anything at the very end of the episode in fact it feels like nothing has actually been gained which is a shame because a lot has happened but nothing has really changed and we'll probably talk about those when we break down the elements so that that will be it for me but what about you tony how do you feel about it i I think i'd go for about a seven out of ten for this one because it's not as good as talitha kumi and it's probably among i'd say the weaker season finales uh, season premieres i should say of the uh, of the show because, uh, but I, I remember, I remember loving it when I when I was young. I mean, you know, this this came out I was fourteen years old, and I'd waited. I talked about until Kumi, I think I I'd had a a re- it was the really hard summer for me because I was really excited by the end of that cliffhanger. So I was I was stoked for this when it actually came out, and I, I remember enjoying the spectacle of it. But I think the more you kind of watch Heronvoke, the more you realise there's not a lot there, you know, and especially when you when you when you put it next to. Tilitha Kumi, which obviously had a lot of the, you know, as we talked about in the last episode the, on on this, a lot of the David Duchovny sort of literary background, you know, with the brothers Karamov and all, all the all the all the all the allusions to all that kind of stuff. And and this doesn't have any of that. This is stripped back. This is much more of a very standard, much more tipped onto the action thriller axis premiere to get you into the season to propel you off. And, and and tick off certain mythology beats that Carter wanted to do. Essentially, 
get you back to the point where nothing's kind of, a tiny little bit has been revealed like you said the bees the cock blocking bees which is a perfect description for them you know you get you get a little bit more of the puzzle but then you're back to the status quo essentially it's in terms of action as well there tony like it's worth noting like the mythology episodes are all like bigger and bombastic but like you you want to go like the previous mythology departure took Mulder to hong kong you know, the next one is going to take him to Russia. Now, obviously, they're, they're still Vancouver dressed up as such, but it's like it has an international sort of appeal to it. Heronvoke takes Mulder to Canada, um, if we're talking yeah. about, like, as an epic sort of, like, <laughs> mythology story. It isn't quite as blockbuster, is it, as, as you know, Hong Kong, Russia, that kind of thing. It is, it is a little bit more, I suppose, provincial. But then it just has that whole feeling of, at the same time, trying to visually make it look a little bit more glossy. You know, I mean, straight away, I I see a difference in terms of how season four and season three, and obviously before that, have been filmed. There is is a little bit more of that stylistic gloss to it. And and that's, that's, it's different from when we got to season six, where obviously we had the change of location to LA and it was all deserts and sunshine and all this kind of thing. It's not the same as that, but at the same time, it it's the show has become it's it's almost like at that point that to use a, mo- a, a a modern parallel it's almost that point where Game of Thrones really started to see you really started to see the money on screen from about like season maybe three you know again maybe season three and four the first two seasons that had a lot of money put into them don't get me wrong but there's a there's a moment in that show where it's it, it knows it's a blockbuster. And and for me, Heron Vogue is that moment in the X Files. It's it's when the show is it's, it's it's a blockbuster. It's established. It's mainstream, even though it's weird. And the next few seasons are, are marked by that. And and I think for what it does, it's fun enough. But I think it's not very. It, it doesn't have the depth really. And I think that's why it doesn't really rank on high on a lot of people's favourites, does it? Really. I mean, whenever whenever you hear people talk about premieres, Heron Vogue's never talked about in hallowed whispers <laughs> i think we've talked about this on the show though like the the wonderful thing about the x-files and again this is maybe indicative of what the x-files does rather well the x-files has like the x-files does have really good season finales give or take like the actual series finales um in their season finale sense have really good season finales like everybody thinks about the cliffhangers everybody thinks about like Mulder in the boxcar the x-files being closed the x-files being closed again but this time they're on fire um that sort of stuff and, you know the, the, the endings that sort of like those sorts of stories Mulder has yeah. disappeared appeared Mulder and Scully have a child again and I think it's the show and again maybe this is like one of those very revealing like details of the X-Files is the show is never really as good when it comes to like the premieres in terms of setting stuff up and I mean like I love Little Green Men and I really like the beginning Mm. and I think the start of season eight is amazing the two-parter within and without but it's interesting that like for example we talk about the third season and again People are very understandably going to be upset when I refer to The Blessing Way or offer my opinion on The Blessing Way. (laughs) But The Blessing Way maybe isn't the strongest start to what is a phenomenal season of television, to pick an example. You have, again, Redux 1 and Redux 2, where Redux 1 is the corridor episode, um, to pick an example. (laughs) And you have even, like, if you want to go with Amor Fati and The Sixth Extinction and that sort of stuff, you have... Like, the seventh season has a similar thing where it spreads its premiere over two parts, and I would argue the second part of those is the most interesting of them. And, like, it's... It, it's I think it's revealing, maybe, of the show, and, you know, I'm not one of those, the X-Files asked all these questions that it never really answered, because it actually did answer a lot of the questions. And, mm. in fact, a large mm. part of the problem with the truth is that it does in excruciating detail with like the attention of a guy wearing glasses with a clipboard and a slideshow explain all of the answers to you in a way that's like soul destroying 
but the, the show was maybe not as good when it came to always paying off kind of what it set up. And I, I think that Heron Vogue is kind of indicative of that, where, like, Tadaki Kumi has all these balls in the air, and they're remarkable, and they're striking, and they're effective, and Heron Vogue kind of, like, waylays them a little bit. Actually, just, just before we move on, it's worth noting in terms of... You mentioned the glossiness of it. And you're right, I actually love... I point to, yeah, Season 3 of Game of Thrones is a great example. The moment where Tyrion doesn't have to be knocked unconscious before we have a big budget <laughs> battle that would like, blow <laughs> yes. all the money that we've allocated for the season. Um, yeah. The show actually changed cinematographer. John Bartley, um, who had been doing the cinematography in the X-Wells in the first three seasons, stepped aside. Uh, he was replaced by Ron Stanlett on the first couple episodes of the season. Now, according to Dreamwatch, and I'm wary of citing this just because I don't know any other sources, but Dreamwatch said there was some sort of internal kind of controversy around there. It was his cinematography was described as soap opera style, which is interesting when you think about high definition and how a lot of people's observations about like the transition to high definition in film and television made it look more like a soap opera because it's shot digitally and it looks more naturalistic as opposed to what we've come to associate with the language of film. Uh, John Joffin then took over later in the season as well. So yeah, the, the change in look is a very conscious and very sort of like it's it's a result of like changes that are happening behind the scenes and you're right it does immediately look a lot more striking and like i I joked about like oh well Mulder's gone to canada how exotic but those shots are absolutely beautiful those shots of like Mm. the the farms uh with the twins and there's this real sense of space and i mean we'll probably talk about this later on we're talking about things that i really like about the episode but like it does have this sort of impressive sense of like there is a wilderness out there full of things that you in your home watching this show can't possibly imagine existing. But the continent is so vast and so expansive that like there's room for this sort of strangeness for plants that don't even have names, according to, you know, the, the um, according to <laughs> Jeremiah Smith. But obviously you know, just for you know clones and copies and like people who disappear on small country roads where their corpses are apparently left mm. to rot for days. <laughs> and it, it has that sort of, like, quality to it. It does feel vaster. And it does feel larger yeah. than a lot of mythology episodes. And I kind of like that. It's just the storytelling that it's, it's in service of doesn't necessarily work for me, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, would you say, just before we go on to talk about the main episode, would you say that the, you know, the everything you just talked about in terms of the visual side and the change in cinematographers and, and you know, that perhaps that's broader canvas. I mean, that plays into season four in 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 many respects i mean what what do you think about the season as a whole because i think we we tend to do this every time we we do a premiere episode and we talk about you know the season to come i mean what what's what are your thoughts on broadly on season four this is interesting because i mean there are a lot of people who will point to season four as like the greatest season of the x-files and that's entirely justified it contains some of the best episodes in the highest possible concentration. So it, for example, includes episodes that I'm really fond of, like Musings of a Cigarette Smoking Man, Never Again, which are quite controversial. But even if you take those out, they have episodes like Home, which is universally beloved, Paper Hearts, which is universally beloved, The Cancer Arc with Scully, Leonard Betts, uh, Memento Mori, uh, but even things like Tempest Fugitive and Max, which don't get enough credit, and then obviously Small Potatoes, which a lot of people like, even though I'm not entirely fond of it. But it has this, like, it has all these really great elements in it that people absolutely love and it's interesting because like we 
you know, I, th- I think we played a game on this the podcast before where we've wondered, like, if you were constructing a prestige-era season of the X-Files, if you were to say, like, what does season one or season two or season three of the X-Files look as a prestige season, it's challenging because you would always have to cut something out. You'd always have to cut, you know, you have, like, 24 episodes or 22 episodes, you've got to reduce it down to 13, you're going to end up losing between 9 and 11 episodes, and that can be tough in, in certain seasons. The thing about season four is that it's quite clear which ones are the good ones and which ones are not, because for every... And again, every every season of X-Files has clunkers. I mean, like, season three, for example, has, you know, off the top of my head, it has, um, I would argue, Susichi, although I understand that that's beloved, but it has Tesso Dos Bichos, to pick a, an example that will probably be less controversial to people. But, like, the issue with season four, for me, is that it kind of bounces between extremes. So, like, you have, to start off the season, you have Heronvoke, which I don't think is very good, but, I mean, I understand that there are people who like it. We're going to talk about the IMDb score on this as well. I'm quite curious what that is. But you have even, then you go to Home, which is one of the all-time great episodes. A lot of people would have that in their top ten. You bounce from Home to Teleco, and it's like, well, it's what if tombs, but racist. Um, and then you go from uh, Teleco to Unrue, which is, is really great. I really, really love Unrue. I think it's a solid episode. You have, like, The Field Where I Died, where people are, like, controversial. And then you've got Sanguinarium, which is, like, best thing you can say about Sanguinarium is that it's it's fun, I guess. Um, it's completely off the wall, yeah. And then, then you're, like, bouncing around between Tunguska, Terma. Paper Hearts is great. El Mundo Giro. Leonard Betts, wait, never again. You know, and you have this sort of, like, thing, you have unrequited in there, you've got synchrony, you've got, like, all this stuff that doesn't really fit, and that's kind of what holds it back as a season for me. That's why, while I understand and respect people are like, season four is the best season ever, for me, it doesn't work as well as, say, season three, uh, which is one of the all-time great seasons of American television, particularly in, like, the 24-episode format, or season five, which also has this sort of consistent through-line, and, like, it has a thematic kind of coherency that gets it over some of the humps that season four doesn't necessarily have. And even season eight, which, you know, while the individual episodes are not necessarily all-timers, I think season eight has a flow and a structure to it that helps it as a season of television. The issue with season four is that it often just feels like a mess of episodes thrown together, sort of thrown against the wall, without any real coherence or coherent theme. I mean, famously, the Scully arc that happens in the middle of the season is something that happened on the spur of the moment because Darren Morgan wasn't able to get his script done on time. So you have, like, this wasn't something the writers sat down and planned at the start of the year. This was like, oh, crap, we have a weekend to write a script. Well, I guess this is going in. And so as a result, you don't really have a sort of a constant thematic through line in the way that you do with, say, season three's preoccupation with the Second World War or, like, season five's fixation on, like, weird, grotesque, monstrous reproduction. And and that kind of holds it back for me, which is a shame because, like, if I were picking my top ten X-Files episodes, I suspect season four would arguably be the best represented season on the list. Like, off the top of my head, like, most of my top ten are, are a majority, uh, plur- plurality. Well, a large number of my top ten episodes would come from season four, which is interesting given that it would probably be my fourth favorite season at best. You've contextualized that very well there, because... I always used to think that season four was my favourite season after season two. I still think season two is my favourite season for lots of reasons. But, you know, it's true. It is very, it is weirdly hit and miss. When you when you think of it like that and you talk about them one after the other, these episodes, it does have great episode, uh, great episode, uh, really good episode. Uh, and it's, it is funny like that. And and like you say, when it, in season four, when it is good, it is great. Like you say, home. 
small potatoes, which I know people have certain problems with, but I think is I, I think is great fun. Zero sum, I, I love to bits. That's a great episode. Paper you know, hearts, and, and yeah. s- paper hearts, of course. Yeah, paper hearts. So you've got you've got these real amusings, musings of a cigarette smoking man, which I which I love to bits. So you know you've got these real highs, things that yeah you would put in a high up on a list. But it's so it, it is a it is a strange it is a strange season in that sense. It, it's a it's the season where it, it feels like they were they were really preoccupied with trying to create trying to make everything a little bit bigger, trying to make everything a little bit bigger and more exciting, more horrific. You know, it was upping the ante. You know, I mean, you get that obviously in Home, which we'll be talking about next week, where you know the the most. The, the most horrific episode of television banned, banned, you know, that kind of thing. And they really went for broke with that, you know? And then, then like, your know, musings being really format breaking and really trying, you know, tipping everything on its axis and being very apocryphal and all this kind of thing. And then the Tunguska two-parter, which builds on, you know, the high concept season three two-parters and Mulder on a horseback, you know, and in Russia. Russian gulags in Russia. Yeah. Russian in gulags Soviet Russia, and... Mulder, Mulder conspiracies you. Um, that's yeah. thing. <laughs> right, you know, so it does feel like the scale has been upped. And yeah, the quality can be can be fairly hit and miss. It's really, it is really interesting. And I think Heronvoke is, you know, it, it is a good example of that, really. It sort of encapsulates that all in one episode. It's also worth noting, actually, that again, it, like this, the reason that that was happening, there's a reason behind the scenes, which is that Carter was like launching Millennium at the same time mm, and also writing the screenplay for a film that he would shoot during the summer between season four and season five. Like Carter, again, like, we, you know, Carter's a polarizing figure as a showrunner and a lot of people have criticisms of his work and his decisions and stuff like that. But his output, like, and the amount of work that he was putting in, particularly during this season of television, is, is frankly flabbergasting. Like, in terms of, Crazy. I have no idea where he was sleeping or what was happening or how he was, how he survived, like, doing this for a year. Uh, because obviously, like, later on, in, when it came to the next season, he had to hand over Millennium to, to Glenn Morgan and James Wong. But, like, it feels like, and again, while what he's doing is phenomenal in terms of work, like, this, we're talking the bones of, what, 46 episodes of television and a feature film in the space of this, like, you know, 12 month period and which is yeah which is astounding it's i can't nuts. produce a, i can't produce yeah. a single episode of television in a 12 month period tony um but again, <laughs> he's doing that and like while that's staggering as an accomplishment and i am still in awe of the fact that he's able to do it hmm. you can feel the reins sort of slackening a bit and like we talked on the show before about how like the x-files occasionally and again it's a credit to carter as a showrunner that he's comfortable enough to do this the x-files occasionally feeling like a little it's more like a cluster of different shows you've got like darren morgan's version of the x-files which is different from vince gilligan's which is different from morgan and wong's but what happens with season four when carter's kind of attention is on millennium and on the x-files is that really seems to explode like the show almost seems to tear itself apart like the the four most controversial episodes of the season are all morgan and wong joints and you can tell that like there's no adult in the house to tell them they can't do that which is great by the way i adore all four of those episodes but again they feel very much like the show is like daddy's away uh what are we gonna do and you have that sort of thing running through it where there's a real and again there's an element of that with a cancer arc as well where it's like well we're in a bit of a bind so just throw it at the wall and see what happens Mm. and it's exhilarating but it's not entirely consistent if that makes sense it it would be a trial for anyone to try and really make that perfectly consistent. So I think considering that, you know, they, they all did a great job really, but yeah, it was um, a heck of a time really. IMDb then 
Well, let's let's play the guessing game, Darren. I think we've done this before. So, what what would you say? What would you say? Bearing in mind, as ever, that IMDb ratings tend to range from the you know the the like nine points to, through yeah. to about the six point, yeah, the mid six points. So, what would you what would you reckon? Now, this keep in mind that I gave this a four point five, Tony, and I'm objectively correct about this, obviously. <laughs> um, no, and we we know for a fact that like what happens is mythology episodes tend to get a bit of a boost as well. And we know for a fact that, like, episodes and seasons that people like as a whole tend to get a boost as well. And we also find that later on in the show's run, the number of votes tends to go down. So I'm going to throw this out there. I'm going to say, does this get an 8.2? That's not a bad guess at all. It has, I of 100 and, uh, no. <laughs> no, there isn't 181,000 for Heronvoke. There is 181,000 for the X-Files. <laughs> that would be amazing. Be- um... <laughs> It's a lot of people watch popular episode of television ever. <laughs> um, out of, out of two thousand five hundred and fifty-two votes, Heron vote gets an eight point six. Which, yeah, you so you're not far off the money really. But I was I mean, low, that, which tells you something. Yeah, and it it ranks it equals with several other mythology episodes of the season it's probably one of the higher ranked episodes of the season in terms of the imdb rankings really season four doesn't seem to have that many that really tip into the nine points so it's it's an interesting one in that sense so yeah 8.6 i mean cumulatively that's you know that's, that's relatively good i think i think you know as we say it's one of those episodes where People enjoy the spectacle and maybe when, you know, if they, if they were to look a bit deeper and think a bit deeper, they might not find as much to love. But at the same time, there is some good stuff in this. There is some cool stuff. There are some memorable moments. It's worth pointing out, like, a lot of the iconography associated with the movie. And we're talking about the bees. We're talking about, the, like, the plantation, the pollination plants and stuff like that all originates here. And that's, like, the apex of the X-Files as a pop cultural phenomenon. It's almost that shot of Mulder and Scully running through the kind of, like, the... Uh, the apiary with the bees and stuff like that. So, I mean, what do we know, Tony, really? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That I can think of no better way to suggest we carry on talking about the episode. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Than that phrase. What the <laughs> hell do we know? <laughs> Heronvoke begins. Um, Heronvoke, incidentally, the title uh, is German for Master Race, which, you know, is pretty self-explanatory given the, uh, the, clo- the, the blonde boy clones that we see in the teaser, the, uh, the cold open, which... It's in Canada, eh? Yeah. <laughs> What's it all about? 
I love how the episode so effortlessly establishes that it's set in Canada <laughs> by having a really polite and friendly serviceman who talks yeah. in cliches. Like when even <laughs> even when he gets stung with a bee, he's like, "Ah, damn it!" Um, it's like a bee stung me, eh? Ah, now don't you all take the cake? I don't know why he sounds like he's from Fargo, uh, but for some reason he kind of does. Um, like I love that the X Files is like we've been shooting in Canada, we've been in like Vancouver for like you know at this stage three years. I feel like we can manage to portray Canada with cultural sensitivity, insight, <laughs> and nuance. Let's apply all of that to the opening scene of this episode. Hey, it's you know, the X Files was famous, famous for cultural sensitivity, Darren. You know, it's famous for it. Um, but yeah, sorry to any Canadians who we may have offended because there's probably a lot of Canadian listeners. But you know, we, 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 we do love you, all of you. Tony, don't they all just take the cake? <laughs> they all just take the cake, eh? Um, so <laughs> we'll stop there. Yeah, so apologies. yeah, sorry guys, sorry guys. It's uh, it's the 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 creepy the creepy blonde clone children, uh, and we see the bee. Now is this the first? This is the first time the bee appears, isn't it? This is the first appearance of the bees in the X Files. The bees that sting and give you smallpox. In this case, I think that's what he ends up with, isn't it? He ends he ends up with smallpox right it's not named in the episode and again this is the point no. this is the point where the show sort of reaches that kind of sense of like and again like you you can talk about how much carter was making it up as he was going along versus how much he had planned ahead and how he had to improvise and stuff like that we talked a little bit about things like say the black oil where like how the black oil functions changes like three times over the course of the first three episodes in which it appears does it uh, does it like possess you does it turn you into a zombie like where you're an aliens being controlled by you does it turn you in does it put you in a coma does it like incubate you with this sort of like alien baby thing and it's like well it can do all of those three things depending on what we want it to do in a given episode <laughs> and i mean like again you can you can explain that with like well clearly it's different forms of it different you know hepatitis a hepatitis b maybe there's like black oil a and black oil b or whatever but you get a sense that with the show and again, like the same thing with the bees, where you can explain what's happening with the bees, where it's like they're being, you know, they're being given this pollen in order to help spread. They're going to spread, first of all, they're going to spread smallpox in order to thin the population, apparently. And then they're also going to spread, they're going to serve as like a mechanism for spreading the the black oil, the virus, that will transform and allow the colonists to birth themselves. And you can sort of explain that, but it feels unnecessarily convoluted as far as mythology mm. plot goes, where it's like, well, yeah, if you have to keep track of there being two different type of bees, just as you have to keep track of there being like three different types of black oil it feels like there's a little bit of like you could have done some streamlining in the sort of storytelling or in the mapping out of the arc and like part of me suspects again this is down to carter having ideas and running with them and not necessarily having like a concrete like i printed out what my bible for what the show is going to be and famously he didn't have a bible for mythology he just sort of kind of you know it was prone to be improvised and prone to develop and branch off in interesting directions and this is around the time where it starts to feel a little bit like it's not necessarily going to wrap up neatly, even though people are, as you point out, this is like a watershed moment for the show. People are tuning in. People are very interested and excited. People are engaging with this. So people are beginning to expect that the show is going to offer answers. And with stuff like The Bees, it starts becoming very clear that Carter's going to add a lot of convolutions that, you know, if you were, mm. if you were 
in a writing class and you were writing a story and you're like, well, there's bees and they're spreading a virus and you're writing, you're writing professors like, that's great. It's like, yeah, but there are also other bees and they're spreading a virus after that, which is going to turn people into incubators. He's like, well, maybe you could like streamline that a little bit. Um, yeah. And it kind of like, it, it's interesting because I think it, it illustrates how, first of all, how Carter's mind works, but also how the show sometimes was out. You're reaching the point where the show was going to frustrate certain viewers. And I, I am mm. sympathetic to that. Yeah. Definitely, it's it's expanding without necessarily you know streamlining itself in terms of storytelling, and you know, but it's an it's an interesting it's an interesting cold open that leads into credits with one of the uh, the classic the truth is out there changes from the uh, from the credits. In this case, we get the the charming and cheerful <laughs> everything dies, everything dies, which obviously later the bounty hunter says um, in one of the rare times he does speak. So, you know, Carter's in a great mood, isn't he, when he's writing this? You know, let's change it. Let's give everyone a heartwarming message for the new season. I do wonder about this. We'll probably talk about this later. But there's a sense that, like... So when when Carter planned the X-Files, and he gave a lot of interviews around the start of the X-Files, um, and he also kind of gave a lot of interviews through the early season of the X-Files when he asked how long he expected the show to run. And he famously... He often gave the answer of five seasons. And that, that's not a novel answer. It isn't like he plucked that number out of the air. Five seasons of 20 episodes or 20 plus episodes will get you over 100 episodes. Over 100 episodes will allow you to sell the show into syndication. Syndication means you'll constantly get to make money. So, like, that's why yeah. producers tend to, like, aim for five seasons. Five seasons of 20 plus episodes is about, you know, is about 100 episodes. That's a good place to end. And, like, so Carter, in all of these early interviews, kind of gave, like, well, I'm going to I'm gonna wrap up after about five seasons. And what's interesting is that he didn't. Um, he kept going for another four, and then he did two. He did two feature films. He also did two seasons afterwards as well, two sort of like event series afterwards. And what's interesting is that I wonder if the fact that Heronvoke would have arrived around the point that Carter realized that he was not going to wrap up after five seasons. He's talked, I think, in an AV Club interview about how he was basically told by Fox that. If he didn't want to do the show after any point, they would happily take it off his hands and run it for him. And he felt like he couldn't do that to Duchovny and Anderson, so he basically stayed on the show after that point. But there's a sense watching this with that sense of, like, first of all, the fact that the show, at a point where it should be, like, contracting and heading towards that, like, we're, we're in theory, past the halfway point of Carter's plan. You know, it should be streamlining. But it's kind of curious whether you get to the point where everything dies and then the twist at the end is everything lives it's kind of like carter reflecting <laughs> on the fact that like the x-files isn't actually going to like end as he expected it doesn't actually going to die as worth noting that like the episode itself has this recurring motif of like mortality and characters who theoretically like should be dying and i mean you know Mulder's mother for example is like she's had a stroke and the doctor's like well she's she's pretty much gone and the episode turns around at the end and has her resurrected and healed for reasons that are, um, you know, somewhat vague in the way the cigarette smoking man's mm. reasons for doing things tend to be vague. But you even have things like, say, X, who's killed off. And, you know, that should theoretically be like a game changer. He was a recurring character. He appeared something like 12 times uh, leading up to this episode in two seasons. This should be like a, a big event and represent like like the death of Deep Throat at the end of season one. This is that should be like a wow moment. But what happens is almost immediately at the end of the episode, you get a replacement X 
very much. Like, Mulder doesn't even have to do that bit where he waits a couple of episodes at the start of the second season to find a replacement Deep Throat. X just points him in the direction. It's like, well, here's your new surrogate X. Now, obviously, that relationship gets more complicated sort of in later episodes. But it does feel like the show is, you know, what's that Stan Lee quote? I don't know if he actually said it, but it's credited to him by writers like, say, Peter David. It's the illusion of change. It's the idea that you you give just enough to the audience that it feels like stuff has actually moved forward, the plot has actually progressed, the character circumstances have actually changed, but you haven't actually changed any of the underlying dynamics. You've just you know killed off one character and had another character come back who fulfills that narrative function. You've had another character threatened with death and told that they're pretty much going to die, and then you have that character miraculously healed at the end of the episode so everything can go back to normal. And it feels like there's a bit of that happening with Heron Voke, which kind of, I wonder if that's tied to the, you know, everything dies, and then at the end, not everything dies, Mr. Mulder. And if that's Carter sort of, like, playing with that a little bit. It does make sense that he's he's trying to he's trying to subvert your expectations of everything, you know, and, and that's that's why he's front, he front, like, you know, he very rarely changed the, t- the title card from The Truth Is Out There. So he does it for a specific reason whenever he does it. But... Yeah, it's it's obviously then you know leads into the uh, back just back into the end of the cliffhanger and you know it picks up directly after that cliffhanger. Now the, the blessing way didn't quite do that. The blessing way sort of moved things on a little bit and then got you know back into the story. This one really does, and you know the Erlenmeyer flask obviously didn't do that. That moved on um, into Little Green Men into a different scenario. This one literally has us back in that quarry with Mulder with the stiletto and oh my god. How do we get out of this? And as it turns out, how they get out of it is by running. A lot of running, really. Which it, the thing is, right? That what that I'm not going to lie. That was a disappointment because the way it's set up at the end of Talithakumi, it looks like he's really boxed into a corner. That they all are. There's no getting away. They've got to fight this guy. They've got to find a way to take this guy down, right? But oh, luckily, some stairs. Let's bolt, you know. And you're like, well, okay. Is is this purely just so you can show off a fancy big set that you found, a nice big warehouse, and have lots of, you know, shots of running around there trying to get an action adventure vibe? I mean that that's what it got that's what I found for I felt from it. It was very much trying to kick off the season with chase thrills, you know, excitement. And and it feels a bit cheap, doesn't it? After the after the, the setup of that cliffhanger. Yeah, and there's a lot of that as well. There's like the moment later on in the episode where like the alien bounty under Kamikaze is a phone box with Mulder in it and then tosses <laughs> him around like a rag doll. Um, and it's very much like you could tell that Carter watched Terminator and it was like, okay, the alien bounty hunter is, you know, we're doing proper Terminator stuff now with him. You know what else that um that's that moment reminds me of though? The bit with the bit where he he, he Mulder's in the, the phone box and the car's coming out. Duel. Steven Spielberg's oh, duel. I wonder if that was an, a nod to that because there's a great moment in that film where the truck is coming in to hit him in the phone box. It could have been. It and and been. it is, and Carter's like a huge Spielberg fan. He's talked about like Raiders of the Lost Ark, seeing Raiders of the Lost Ark in the cinema being the moment that Carter, as like a writer, realised that he wanted to make like films and television. He wanted to tell stories on a screen. So I would not be surprised to see that. And obviously Spielberg is like one of the great definitive American filmmakers, but his influence on the X-Files is particularly strong. So that would not surprise me at all. It's also, when you mentioned that, like, the idea of that cliffhanger and the resolution, again, like, and I, I'm, I'm hesitant to do, like, I'm hesitant to do this, I don't have any behind-the-scenes information, never interviewed Carter about this, never talked to anybody who worked on the show, but I wonder if, like, one of the criticisms of, like, the second season cliffhanger, 
uh, that I've read and that I've heard online, I've seen with various in- sort of interviews, and it's something that comes out of the criticism of the blessing way. And it's maybe like a, a kind of a flanderization of the criticism of the blessing way, where it's like, you know, well, Mulder was trapped in the boxcar at the end of the second season with smoke pouring in, fire burning, under a mountain of dead bodies. And it's like, well, the cliffhanger afterwards just picked up with him having magically gotten away. And I've seen, like, I've seen criticism of the third season premiere that is along those lines. It's like, well, it's a cheat. It's like you showed Mulder in danger. And then, like, at the start of the next season, you had him out. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Danger miraculously. Now that's ignoring the idea that, you know, well, first of all, you saw that the alien crawled out at the start of Anasazi from the uh, remains or like the body. The, whether it's an experimental victim or an alien, you saw that it crawled out of the crater, sort of like into the rocks where it could be found. So like, obviously there's precedent there and you know that there's a way out like that. It's also entirely possible that you know that there are benign forces at work in the world that maybe might have helped guide Mulder out or transport Mulder out. So, you know, it it's not a plot hole in that sense in terms of the world of the X-Files. But I can see that like a lot of people would have been upset with that. And I've read reviews where they are. And I wonder if... And again, this is maybe me reading too much into it, but the start of Heronvoke, which is like, well, we've put Mulder in another life-threatening situation. The people on the internet are going to complain if we don't show exactly <laughs> how he got out of it. So, first act of episode, you know, episode one, yeah. season four, is going to be Mulder running around a lot. Um, and I kind of wonder if there's very much one of those, like, be careful what you wish for aspects of it, where it's like, well, you wanted to see how Mulder got out of this situation and put him in? Well, watch. Yeah, I, th- I think I think that there could be some truth to that. I mean, it, it, <laughs> it's and it's it's perfectly fine. You know, that whole sequence is perfectly fine. But it, I mean, the, 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 the thing that the thing that gets me with it is ultimately, you know, the, 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 the bounty hunter chases him, blah, 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 blah. They, they Mulder manages to do what he's been told works yes. and stab him in the neck, yes. right, with the stiletto, right? This is the only way to kill him, right? You've got to stab him in the back of the neck. Okay, yeah, no, it doesn't work. So I mean, is it one of those things where Carter intentionally is fudging his own internal mythology and his own internal rules? Or is it is it one of those things that the X-Files classically does in that, well... It might not actually be true what these people are saying. You know, it might it might be that X was told that's how you kill him, and maybe that's just was never the case. Maybe you can't kill him. Maybe you know. That, do you know what I mean? Is it is it? Do you think that was a gaff? Do you think that was intentional? Do you think that was all part of the plan? 
this, this is kind of like weirdly interesting because again we talked about this on like Talitha Kumi with like the <laughs> the stiletto being a really crap Excalibur um, and again like we talked about like the show tends to do it, I think it does fudge these things like so like in the 8th season premiere as well I think Scully's able to kill a bounty hunter by shooting the back of his neck with a gun and yeah. a regular bullet so I think that there is some fudging there and it, again like this is one of the things where it feels almost like Carter's immediately setting up. You have this idea where the show has told you everything dies, like in the opening credits, and you have the alien bounty hunter who's been killed in the exact way that Mulder's been told how to kill him, using the weapon that, as you pointed out, the entire purpose of the last episode was to get a hold of. And so, like, the story is building to this gigantic moment of Mulder killing a dragon using really crap Excalibur, and then it just sort of does nothing. He, like, pulls himself back out of the wood chips. And, like, it's really great. It's really atmospheric. It looks fantastic. But it does feel a little bit like a kind of a massive cop-out. And it's, again, like, I wonder if this was... And, like, it, I'm cautious about crediting too much of this to Carter being like, well, hey, screw you guys. Um, or being like, hey, I have to keep this going and this is like an abstract, like metaphorical representation of what I'm doing as a writer. Where it's like, well, the plot should theoretically progress past this point. But now I've realized that I'm not going to be wrapping up the show at the end of season five like I planned because Fox wants to keep it on the air. Because Fox want to have a movie and a sixth season, uh, which is becoming increasingly clear at this point of the show's run. And I wonder if there's an element of that as well to it, where it's like, not even the bad guy dies, um, despite the fact that I've told you that everybody should be dying. It does feel <laughs> it does feel very deliberate and very much a choice. Because, I mean, it as much as Carter gets flack as a writer, there's no way in which he forgot that, like, putting it in the back of the alien's neck should kill it. And no way in which he thought as a writer that, like, being told that you should put it in the back of the neck... And putting it in the back of the neck gives you enough wiggle room that you could say, well, hey. <laughs> it was really more of like the upper, lower back area that he managed to stab, really. <laughs> Muller got the scalp, really. Yeah. Um, you, didn't, you didn't quite get the right back of the neck. You know, it, it was a mm, bit to the left. And that's, yeah, I know. You, you're almost certainly right there. It, it feels too much of a specific thing for, him, for them to get wrong that quickly. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's... It, it is a bit of a cop out, I guess, but it, you know, it, it it functions in terms of you know, like you say, the Terminator aspect of the plot. This guy, you know, stalking after them as they as they head to Canada, you know, and as we talked about, it becomes a road trip for Mulder and and, and Jeremiah. Has to have to be has to be said though, Darren. They go a long way in that boat in a car. What the hell were they talking about? Radio stations. Because, because- Jeremiah did, Smith they, they really likes, not... like, talk radio, and Mulder's like, nope, nope, not turning that on. Because Mulder's got, like, in theory, about a day or whatever to sit there with this alien shapeshifter and say, right, okay, what, just give me, give me the lot, give me the skinny, right, we've, we've got plenty of time, you're not, you're not, you're not gonna die, you're not gonna get abducted by aliens, you're not, like, you know, you're not injured, that means you can't talk, you, 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 please just tell me everything you can about the entire conspiracy, your alien race, the history of it all. You know, just give me the lot. I really, and- I really love the idea of Jeremiah Smith just being, he's very polite, but he's very quiet. Um, <laughs> just enjoy the silence. It's like, um, was it? It's like, um, have you seen Lady Bird? Yes. 
the bit at the start yeah. of Ladybird where um you know afterwards where like Ladybird's gonna put on the the next tape and she's like let's just sit with that a moment her mother's like let's <laughs> just sit with that a moment I like to imagine that that's what Mulder and like Jeremiah's road trip was it was like well um <laughs> Mulder's like so you know the way you told me that it's a plot for colonization to take over the world and to like install a new origin of species and it's like uh you know where are we going after this what's next what's the plan and Jeremiah's just sitting there going let's just let that sit with you for a while <laughs> It's the only explanation. It really is. I feel like there's there's at least a, a, an entire episode that you could you could have made with this car journey. Like I mean, I mean, it, it, for me, it's it's a tie-in. If, if anyone if anyone's still writing these anthology X Files stories, you know these 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 prose stories, like just seriously, you've got a, you've got a winner there. The car journey in Heronvoke, because I, I want to know what happens. You know, Mulder and Jeremiah's <laughs> bogus journey. But yeah, anyway, you know, if, if you put that aside, then it, I suppose the whole the whole crux of this is that what what having I suppose Tina in the hospital dying does is it gives Mulder even more of an imperative to go with Jeremiah and you know or ultimately try and get his help. Because I, I mean that 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 adds an extra dimension to it, I guess, doesn't it? Really, that he's got a reason. Not just his own selfish reasons, but he's got a reason for to to keep this guy around to protect him, because ultimately, you know, he's trying to he's trying to save his mother's life, and I th- I think that that's a nice aspect to it. Yeah, um, I, I mean, like I've I've been fairly harsh about Heronvoke. Like, just to talk about one of the things that I really really like about the episode is that it's that rare, and again, this is something that happens on the show very rarely. The show does this like as a whole in its Monster of the Week episodes very very well in the sense of like unlimited vast American wilderness. The idea that Mulder and Scully get in a car and they go, or on a plane, but when they get off the plane, they get in a car and they go somewhere, and it's this little community that has its own little secrets that are clustered away. I mean, like next week you've got home coming along which is like the greatest example of that it's like the community of home which has its own little secrets its own monsters that are lurking in the shadows and like the you know the light that's creeping in and the fact that they're going to have to retreat from that light further into like the shadows but america is vast enough that they can do that and again the the standalone episodes do that very well i can think of like detour off the top of my head which is one about like well we're you know cutting down the forest but there are monsters living in there even like darkness falls is another forest episode where it's like the wilderness is so vast that you have these things that have been hiding there for so long that people have never encountered them until this logging company goes in there and it's rare that you really get that with a mythology episode to an extent. Like, I mean, you obviously, you have stuff like the discovery of the black oil at the bottom of the sea in the last two-parter. Um, but you also, you rarely have that sense of, like, getting in a car and driving across the American wilderness. And very literally the American wilderness. They go to Canada, so it's the North American continent. And the idea that the North American continent is so vast and so alien to a certain extent that it can have all this wonder and surprise and mystery in there. It's very telling. Again, you want to talk about things that the, like, Heronvoke as a reflection of what Carter was thinking about thematically um, and, like, just in terms of imagery, when he was writing the film, because he, he went to Hawaii, I believe, over Christmas with Frank Spotnitz, and they hashed out the basic plot and script of Fight the Future there around the time, so this would have been what would have been cooking in his head. But things like, for example, the opening of the, the movie, which is like this really weird ancient tundra, the Ice Age, snow, a completely alien landscape with monsters haunting in it, it turns out to be Texas. And, like, that sense of... <laughs> 
that theme that runs through it's American horror in general. I mean, like Pet Cemetery is out in cinemas as we're recording this, and maybe as released, it'll still be out there as well. But that idea of like you know, there's a moment in Pet Cemetery where the the family who have moved onto a house that has a bad like grounds that contain an ancient Indian burial ground because of course they do. Uh, but there's a moment where <laughs> one of the characters asks their old neighbor Jeb, um, "How far back is the boundary line?" And Jeb replies with, "And it's great." further than you'd ever want to go and this idea that you have like that america as a continent because again like that history of settlers arriving and sort of like spreading out and like manifest destiny and all the stuff that darren loves to talk about on tangents but like this idea that america is so large that it has these weird and eccentric spaces populated by again in the standalone stories the monster of the week stories by monsters by demons by towns that have secrets that they've hidden so well that could never possibly be uncovered by jesus slugs for example by cannibal cults like america is this weird eccentric space and it's kind of it's magical because of that and it's rare to see that in a mythology episode kind of so explicitly, because as we point out, mythology episodes are blockbuster episodes. They tend to be like international. You have stuff like Mulder goes to Hong Kong, for example. Mulder goes to Russia. This sounds like a really, like a series of very boring children's books. Um, but it, that sort of thing. <laughs> Whereas you have episodes, and again, it's something I really like. Nicey in 731 kind of do it to a certain extent with the train line, because obviously trains are this huge part of the American frontier and a part of the national sort of consciousness and a part of the iconography and history of the continent. And they kind of evoke that idea of exploration. But Heronvoke does it as well, and I really like it. It's the rare episode where so much time is spent driving and traveling and journeying and like in the wilderness as opposed to wandering through corridors or office buildings or cityscapes like the, there's that really even the teaser where the you know the the most canadian repairman in the world like dies that scene ends with the kids disappearing off into the long grass over the hills as if to suggest that like where you're living in america if you're watching this there could be a plantation populated by, like, children of the corn, like, just over the hills from you. And you would never realize because the country and the continent is so large and so vast and so, like, contains multitudes. And I really like that in, like, American pop culture in general, but the X-Files in particular. And I like that Heron Vogue sort of encapsulates that to a certain extent. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's something I really love about the episode, which, you know, I, I feel like it's important to stress given how much I've kicked it. Um, <laughs> also, I will note um, in, in terms of kicking Heron Vogue a little bit, 
the dialogue is not great. And it's kind of funny that you, like we were talking again about the idea of uh, Jeremiah Smith and Mulder not really talking to one another. And part of me wonders if that's because like Jeremiah Smith in this episode, as opposed to Letha Kumi, because to Letha Kumi, he's sort of, he's a little bit mystical, a little bit prone to talking in abstraction. But here he goes like full Chris Carter. And again, I say this loving Chris Carter from the bottom of my heart. But like you have dialogue where it's like, if they're willing to kill me and then face the consequences of their actions and stand before your ineffectual justice system, I will be dead. I won't be able to save your mother. Mm. The work will go on. The plan will continue to be executed. And at least, like, two-thirds of that could probably be trimmed. Yeah, and it's, like when Mulder, it's a bit purple. Yeah. yeah, and when Mulder's like, what are they growing there? And he's like, a flowering shrub. But its specific epithet can't be found in any of your taxonomic charts. <laughs> And it's like, <laughs> you could just tell me you don't know, Jeremiah. Um, there's a lot Yeah, of simple. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I think this, the thing is, I suppose it's interesting because he, he's, he goes from into Lithakumi. He's very much, like you said, mystical. He's very much almost like, you know, we did discuss this, the way he's positioned as a, a cosmic, a, you know, prophet sort of angel sort of figure you know he's, there's, a, there's a lot more religious mysticism tied up with jeremiah in that episode with obviously you know the whole healing with the palm of your hand and uh and, and all that whereas in this it is it's a it's he's more like you know and i know that the, the the whole point of what the smoking man was doing to him in that psychological breakdown was that you know you you are chattel all that kind of thing but in this he does he just really feels like a version of an informant for Mulder, you know, a version of a bit more of a mystical alien informant, but somebody who is designed to deliver information, you know. And I, I always, I always struck me how how strange his fate in this ended up being. You know, it's like the way they shot it was really weird. In that he's just sort of shambling off, <laughs> collapsing onto the ground, and that's it. You never see it. Well, okay, you do see maybe him again. In in season eight, but that could just as easily be a clone. It might not be the same. It probably isn't the same guy, in fact. But you know, it's really strange. It's like for all the build up, it's like well, what happened to him? Like you, you don't even see that. <laughs> the murder you know, happens suppose, off screen. It's like <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. The execution happens off screen. And I guess you know we've been given enough information to infer that the bounty hunter killed Jeremiah, more than likely killed Samantha clone, you know, and, and mopped up all the evidence and everything like that. But still, you feel a little bit like, well, what happened there? Like, it's it's a bit like an ending that just finishes and just in order to get moulded to where he needs to be. And you think, well, it's a shame because Jeremiah kind of, I think he drew a bit of the short straw here as a character. I love the idea that the alien bounty hunter, after he knocks out Mulder, kind of sighs, rolls up his sleeves, like, well, here's my (laughs) nine to five. It's like, the interesting (laughs) part of my day is over and done with. Now comes the killing. Um, But there's like, and you can tell, and it's funny you should talk about that change in Jeremiah Smith. Like, I wonder if, and maybe this is just me, but it's like when I'm watching the episode, you can tell that Roy Thins, who was so, so good in Talitha Kumi, and he's good, he has really good moments here. And interestingly enough, he's he has really good moments here that like bounce off really bad moments where it's like you can feel, and again, I'm, I, I'm cautious about projecting or reading too much into it, but like watching Thins when he's delivering those exposition dumps, those Chris Carter dumps, like there are actors who do that very well. Um, and I think Dukovny is much better at it than he's typically given credit for. But there are actors who are either, like, unable to find a way to articulate that particular style of dialogue because they're, you know, they're from a naturalistic school or they're used to work, you know, they, they 
don't have that background in like theater for example they used to work in film and television where dialogue is sort of shorter and, and more grounded but like when thins is doing that stuff it really looks like he's kind of zoned out almost as an actor and it, it, you're right it could be a performance choice it, it, you know it's very much he's more like a drone here um but it does feel like you've lost a bit of the spark that he had in talitha kumi where like in Talitha Kumi, you had this idea of Jeremiah Smith being the man who couldn't stand by and do nothing. Like, the, what makes this character interesting is the fact that he's not a drone. It's the idea that, like, he he was programmed and he has a role to fill. And he's decided that he has a moral imperative not to do it. But, like, it really seems at times like he's on autopilot here, where he's delivering exposition to Mulder and, like, let's drive across the country and sit in silence, contemplating what we've learned. Um, it doesn't really doesn't really click in the same way that it did in Talitha Kumi. No, it doesn't. And and it, it, you know that kind of flowery flowery dialogue that you describe, it's very clear. You know, and it's it, it is a bit of a shame. It kind of it feels like he sort of just falls off a cliff in a way, like a, a plot cliff in a way by the end, which is which is a real shame. I, I suppose it's it's also part of the fact that this episode's packing a lot into the into the mix. You know, you've got the road trip, you've got the fact that Mulder meets Samantha. You know, again, and in this case, it's 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 a different ver- you know version of Samantha, in that you know we're in Colony when he meets grown up Samantha, it feels much. In fact, I thought I always thought this was interesting about Heronvolt because Mulder when he meets Samantha, child clone Samantha, and he's he's told by Jeremiah this is a basically a a, a clone of your sister, right? Who is working this, this this flowering shrub for you know incubating what. The, whatever's going on with the bees, which we don't know at the time, he he interacts with Samantha, and his instinct is that it is his sister, you know, that he's found his sister. On some level, he knows that it's not, but it doesn't matter, you know. The way he interacts with Samantha, the way he tries to protect her, and to the take way her with him as well, and to take a with, yeah, exactly, to take it uh, with him knowing full well that this isn't his sister you know his sister would have aged <laughs> you know this isn't this is not her but it doesn't matter to him the psychology is that he's so desperate to find her i thought it you know carter didn't necessarily have to throw that into the episode you know you could have just had him have it be the you know the the nazi boys where you know the the, the blonde nazi boys but he didn't he added samantha into the mix and i think that's interesting in that Carter is quite good actually at reminding us of that quest at various points just to the point you might think oh yeah his sister he's after his sister wasn't he he drops that in at various points just remind us oh yeah this is ultimately why one of the major reasons he's doing this because we haven't had anything about Samantha for oh, probably since Colony actually quite a while not, actually yeah, yeah. The, the Oublier I know had a lot of you know emotional tethers to samantha and things like that and but literally in terms of the mythology we haven't had any samantha for a while so i thought that was quite good in its own way and i liked how it gave duchovny and maybe a bit more meat to chew on there it does indeed and it, it's very much like again like we're, we can be rather harsh on carter and i mean like it, i'm gonna be i probably have been quite harsh on carter in this episode but the thing about <laughs> carter is that like he has an understanding in terms of core theme which is very strong and typically gets him through. Like, again, and you can talk about the X-Files. We talked a little bit about how the mythology gets all convoluted and doesn't make sense or whatever. But there is that clear through line, which is often emotional. And you point out that idea of Mulder trying to rescue Samantha, which is like, even if you, you cut away all the confusing, like the, the befuddling, the like obfuscation, the sort of like the, the 
the convoluted elements of the plot that exist primarily just to draw out the mythology a little bit and to avoid answering any, con- you know, writing any concrete answers to any lingering questions. If you strip those out, you still have that sequence where Mulder has found, like, he's trying to find a way to cure his mother, and he's also found this perfect clone of the sister that he lost as a young boy that he thinks he can take home with him, even though he knows Mm. on some level that it's not her. And there's an emotional reality to that that sort of, like, provides a clear, strong through line, which is, like, of course Mulder is going to try and take home this copy of Samantha, the girl who looks like, and again, it's worth noting, exactly as Mulder would remember Samantha. Sure, he met Samantha as a grown-up in Colony Endgame, but for him... Samantha will always be frozen in that moment that she was taken from him. So for him, this is an opportunity to go back and to fix that. Like, to to redeem it, you know? This is almost, again, and I came off the back of something watching Twin Peaks, but this is like Dale Cooper wandering the woods, finding Sarah Palmer, sorry, not Sarah Palmer, um, Laura Palmer, and trying to take her away from the violence. This is like a moment where he can say, and you can understand with like raw emotional power, or even like, say, Star Trek Discovery, the first season, where like you have Empress Giorgio of the Mirror Universe, who is a complete monster. But from the point of view of Michael Burnham, emotionally it makes sense that she's a surrogate for like the, the captain that she lost, the mother figure that she saw die in front of her as a result of her decisions and her actions. And so while like from a rational level you can say that's not Samantha, that doesn't make sense, why is he doing that? Surely he can realize that. There's a strong emotional through line where it's like, yeah. forget about what the bees are. Forget about what they're growing down there. Forget about all the stuff that's happening with Scully and Pendril and the smallpox vaccine and the techno babble. Forget about that stuff. Forget about like the awkward car journey where, you know, it seems like it's, it really seems like they sat in <laughs> silence and occasionally rolled down the window <laughs> passive aggressively. Um, because you have that moment where it's like Mulder believes he can reunite his family because that's his like his primary quest over the course of the show and one of the reasons i like the eighth season finale so much is the idea that Mulder is trying to put back the pieces that won't fit he's trying to help his mother who had a stroke while trying to remember something traumatic because the act of remembering what happened to you in the x-files is actually a traumatic experience of itself and he's trying to bring back samantha it's ironic because like Mulder is at like a really low ebb in this episode but, like, as you get towards the climax, there's this weird, almost, like, Greek myth-type quality. It's, you know, that idea of, um, is it Orpheus in the underworld? Where it's, like, Mulder, his mother is dying. Um, his sister was abducted when he was a child. But in this moment, he believes that he can both, and it's it's telling that he has both the young Samantha and Jeremiah Smith with him. Mulder believes in that moment that he can take Jeremiah Smith to heal his mother and bring Samantha back, which will go a long way towards restoring, um, you know, the, the broken family unit. I mean, you could go even further and make a very spurious argument that we just saw Jeremiah Smith transform himself into Bill Mulder, and you would have the complete Mulder family, <laughs> like the assorted set, all the action figures assembled. But I do think that there's an interesting kind of emotional purity there that kind of carries the episode over maybe some very craggy, very rocky, very sort of like unstable terrain. And you do have to work a little bit to get to that, don't you? That's that's the thing. I suppose, you know, it's it's not maybe as clear cut in, in, the, in the scripting and in, in the actual 
narrative because it does get a bit lost under all the, the, the well, there's no way to, the techno babble, because in some respects, all the, all the kind of stuff that, that Jeremiah says is sort of the variant of, of, of Star Trek techno babble, you know, all that, you know, the specific epithet and all that kind of thing. It's like, well, okay. We get, we get that that he's talking. A lot in a of very time to read way. a thesaurus when working at the U.S. Census, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> right. So you know, if you were to strip that away, you could maybe get to some of these more core theme ideas, which are you know, which are a little bit more mythological in the in the classical sense, which is which is really interesting. And I suppose you know, it, it is what Carter does sometimes struggle to get that balance right with, but. Nonetheless, I mean that that side of it is the is the propulsive center of it, but you know, and ultimately Mulder loses it all. He he doesn't he finds out a little bit more of the piece of the puzzle, but he doesn't he, he can't save Jeremiah. He can't save Samantha. This version of Samantha, and then at the same time, you've got again a separate plot for Scully. Although I, I think Scully fares better in this one. You know, she fares better in this one than she does in. Talitha Kumi. In Talitha Kumi, she was really relegated just to the sidelines, really. Whereas in this, she does get massively sort of, you know, it, it, you know, we, we know Mulder is famous for his um, hanging up without even giving her any, you know, information. This one where she's he's basically on a boat and she's going, where are you going? And he's like, Canada. Like, you know, it's, it's like, do you know what I mean? We've reached that point in our relationship where I don't feel I have to justify this. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's Canada. Um, and, and you know, you think, well, poor Scully, because she's she's left basically having to having to try and and figure out the, the like you say, do all the work. She's all left the in the work. literal you know? wasteland. Like it's it's yeah. not even like she could hop on the boat and we'll drop you somewhere <laughs> more populated. It's like we'll drop you by a road up here. It's like no, no, no. You no. you stay in like the really creepy wasteland. Yeah, and then get attacked by the resurrected bounty hunter. You know, briefly in that whole where are they going? I don't know. Canada. You know, it's the whole thing. Tony. And you feel the scully. I feel like this is a weird point to have reached like three seasons into the X-Files. But <laughs> have you ever thought that Mulder might not be, might actually be the worst sometimes? Yeah. Oh, oh he is. In terms of manners. Like, he's terrible. Like, if, if everyone w- went around talking to their work colleagues the way Mulder does... They they wouldn't have a job. <laughs> like, it's, it's that simple. It's great. I imagine you know. telling my team lead tomorrow. Where, where are you going, Darren? Canada. Um. Canada. <laughs> He's, yeah, he is. He is terrible. And you have to feel for Scully because she just has to adapt and run with it. And she does that quite well in this. You know, she starts looking into the, you know, the stuff that Jeremiah was into. You know, and then starts to uncover the. A thread that they do follow through, you know, through through various points of the season really sort of comes back in um, zero sum later with a whole smallpox eradication program. And I think the key to this, more than anything, is that it gets her a few scenes with Stephen Williams as X, which has happened before. You know, she had, I think it was Nisei in seven thirty one. She had one a little exchange with him. But there's, there's one of the I think the my might be my favorite moment in Heronvoke is where she summons X. He turns up and she just gets a, a set of files and she goes confirm or deny. And, and, and I love that because I'm like she's at the point now where she's she's fed up with these informants, these mysterious informants who just wade in looking for Mulder and then when they see her it's a bit like oh oh it's you. Uh now I'll come back. And she's I, like no. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you Tell coming into the building. On. I think it's like X's line. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's a great Scully moment because she's fed up with the shit now. She's just like, right, just, just yes or no, give me an answer. 
and that that's that's great. I think that's a, a really good Scully moment, and and I I I really enjoyed her interactions with X here. Yeah, no, X X is is good as well. But I mean, actually, in terms of Scully interactions, it's also worth noting she got some scenes with Pendrel as well. Yes. This is the point where Pendrel sort of really comes into his own. I don't know if he's appeared a couple of times before, but this is the point when I was watching the show that I really noticed him, because he has this really adorable moment where she's walking in and she's like, are you busy, Agent <laughs> Pendrel? And he sort of like almost shoots up in a way like, ah, uh, uh, yeah. no, I was just, I'm not at all uh, just yeah. sitting here daydreaming about you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Nothing inappropriate on my work laptop. Um, but it's, and I love that Scully is so oblivious because she's very much like she's on, like this is, Scully's like, okay, I'm going to be doing exposition. So it's like, you know, good, because I've made some headway on this data. And Pendrel's like, what, what's happening? What's going on here? I just said I wasn't busy. Um, I thought you were going to invite me to lunch. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, right. Okay, you want me to just drop everything else I'm doing? Like, it, okay, fine, fine. And I also love that he, like, you get a little scene later on where he's helping her during the presentation. By the way, the presentation has apparently been actually... The imagery that's used has been given in real life, I think, at the University of Indiana as well, uh, because obviously that's the work, I think, of Anne Simon, uh, the science advisor on the show. Um, So it's actually, it's really good. It's cited as a rare example of where science in television, and particularly science fiction television, is very good. So it's it's a very good presentation. Great job, Scully. Um, You, not only did you manage to not lose a clone of your sister and, like, the alien messiah figure, you also gave, like, a really good presentation. So good job, Scully. <laughs> I love that Pendrel is, like, dressed up in a suit. Uh, just when he's yeah, offering, like, yeah. passing the slides. It's... He's gone for his first job interview. You know, it really does feel a bit like that. We we had, and most, most people will know this, but obviously if you haven't listened to it, we had Brendan Beiser on the show not so long back uh, talking to Sarah Blair about playing Pendrel. So, um... That's that's a fairly recent episode. So dig that out because he, he he gives some great stories about that, and um, he's he's a lovely guy. So yeah, good old Pendrel. He's still with us for a little while as well, but there'll, there'll be a few tears before bedtime before the end of this season. Poor Pendrel. Um, and in terms of tears before bedtime, obviously you know let's hit the man on the head and talk about X because this is it. This is his 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 final his final scene. Interestingly, they apparently they reached a point with X where they realised that he he. He, he, they they sort of either they were at a crossroads with him either that they write him out or that they do more with him and they bring him into the story more because they he was sort of repeating his function to some extent but i think i think the decision had been made certainly by the time wet wired was written and polished by carter that this was it because it feels like he's been part of a little bit of a trap for the last two or three episodes and this is the one where it sort of it sort of kicks off in that the syndicate really and the smoking man primarily here, it's all about setting the trap that eventually X falls into, sadly. He's um, Mulder's ex-informant by the end of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, he's a good one, wasn't he? I mean, again, Love we had... X. Um, Love X so much. Steve, Stephen Williams was on the show, which I think I've mentioned before, um, talking to Kurt North. And he's an absolute legend, Stephen. He's such a funny guy. And he's got a real fondness for, for, for X still, even all these years later. And I, I can understand why, because he's, he's, I mean, he's, it's hard to say who's the better, who's the best between him and Deep Throat, because they're so different in so many conceptual ways. But I think, I, Tony, I kind Tony, of, it's not I kind of wish, it's X. I, yeah, I like well, yeah, Deep it is. And, and I, I love Deep and Throat. I, <laughs> I mean, X. Would Deep Throat throw Skinner through an elevator? That's the question here. <laughs> I don't think so. X takes no. this. It's true, isn't it? It's true. It's, uh, it, and I think I, I wouldn't have been sad if X, they'd found a way to keep X around. 
I'll be I'll be honest. I I I think there was still room to keep him around for a bit longer. The man has X appeal. You just can't fight it. It, it it's a it's a it's a decent it's a decent enough death. I don't I, I don't I don't know if it's quite as quite as good or maybe as iconic in terms of the show as as Deep Throat was, but I think I, th- I think I think it's a it's a good way for him to go out and it's just it's just a bit it's just a bit of a shame in a way because I I just miss him. <laughs> I just I just and he never gets that sort of like level of Deep Throat where Deep Throat kind of comes back a couple of times over the course of it and even yeah. when he's not coming back you have like the gravestone that they visit you have obviously X comes back in like the truth as where he appears as a ghost but also like unusual suspects in season five where he has a small role but it's like you never get like pure uncut X again and like. Again, like you're, you're right where they were repeating the function of X. But X was just great fun even when you slotted him into those obligatory like deep throat things like say for example Soft Light because it was very clear that the man had like <laughs> like X had his own stuff going on. And like that always sort of like shone through. You could always imagine that X was like in the middle of doing something very important when Mulder was like, "Hey, <laughs> hey, come help me solve this plot. I've got to I've hit a bit of a hurdle." Yeah. Um, soldiers are dying voodoo or something I don't know help me out here and you could sort of like you really got a sense of like X being like I got out of bed for this <laughs> which is great yeah it is it's uh, nothing I don't think anything tops the um, the, the end game moment where uh, how was the opera wonderful I've never slept better <laughs> The one time X was happy to take a call. And even then, he's (laughs) still a bit of a jerk. Um, And he's still grumpy. Yeah, yeah, I love it. But yeah, bye-bye X. You were were a great character. And yeah, you know, it will pop up again. So we will will get to talk about him again a little bit. But um, but yeah, it was a bit of a punch to the end of, of the episode. And then, you know, it's like we say, it sort of, it sort of ends with the status quo reaffirmed, I guess, you know, Mulder comes back. The the whole the, uh, the whole sequence at the end, which is I, I like about how it's sort of again speaking to the idea that you t- you know you you don't want to make a crusade out of Mulder's quest when the smoking man says you know the, the the fiercest enemy is the man who has nothing left to lose and we all know how important Mulder is to the equation. I, I quite like that because it gives it, and that's why Tina's healed in the end. And I think it's it's a good way of not overcooking that but reminding everyone that yes the reason they haven't killed Mulder <laughs> ultimately yet <laughs> is because you could cause more harm and you know I think what do you think of the way that ends I mean do, do you think do you think they should have let Tina die at this point or do you think it makes sense for the fact they kept her around well, actually, I, like I don't this is the thing where it's one of those like cumulative things like I don't mind that the cigarette smoking man brings Tina back to life and I quite like again we we have and I want to point out, entirely fairly, uh, pointed out some of the issues that exist with Carter's like writing of dialogue and the way characters talk and behave and stuff like that. But one of the things I actually quite like about Heronvoke and that scene in particular is that there's a real sense of like the smoking man is lying through his teeth. That like the, even <laughs> when he's saying that, like, well, and I love that the bounty hunter is like, "Why am I doing this? Do you have any idea how much paperwork yeah. this is going to generate?" It's like. And you're like, you're like, dude, you can heal people with your hands. Like, we'll buy you a coffee afterwards. It's really not that big a deal for you. <laughs> Don't make a scene. Don't be a jerk. These are your work yeah. colleagues. Like, you know, I know you're planning to take over the planet and enslave them, but you don't have to bring the attitude in, really. Workplace, please. But it's like, yeah, so wh- why am I... I don't understand why I'm doing this. And I like the the inference you could read into it, which is that, like, 
The Smoking Man on some level maybe still cares for Tina a little bit. And that's why he's doing it. And obviously he can't come out and say that's why he's doing it. And again, like some of the later revelations about Mulder, while I have some issues with those, and we'll probably, if I happen to be around the podcast when we're talking about those revelations, I'll go into those revelations a bit more, you know, those problems a bit more depth. But they do provide like an explanation for why the cigarette smoking man doesn't just kill Mulder outright at several points in the narrative. And that that reason is that like the cigarette smoking man has his own reason for keeping around, despite the like Marvel supervillain monologuing of, well, we can't possibly kill the hero in the middle of the narrative. <laughs> um, yeah. and, I, and I like that, like you could read that into it. You could say that like he does care for Tina and that's why he's doing it. And this is just, like, grand purple prose rhetoric that he's going to sell this, like, alien on it. Because one imagines that, like, the bounty hunter's not going to be too keen on, well, somebody has to appreciate my water skiing, am I right? Um, As, like, a motivation for, like, this (laughs) convenient last-minute resurrection of a woman that he had an affair with. And, like, you can argue about whether the smoking man is capable of loving anybody but himself, but clearly has some affection for Um, And I quite like that aspect of it. And so I don't mind that Tina doesn't die at the end of the episode. It's just everything resetting back to zero feels like a cheat. And in particular, I'm thinking of like the the bit where, where, where X dies and where he's replaced almost immediately by Marita Cover. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Rubius, who, by the way, despite the fact that she's around for the entire rest of the show, because the actor at that time was sort of blowing up and, and like having a very successful career, X appears in, I think, 12 episodes in like from the point where he appears in Sleepless through to his death here. And that's over the space of under two seasons. Uh, Maria Covarubias is around for six years and appears in a total of 10 episodes in total. Um, and it's, it's kind of, it really, that's one of the things where it feels like the, the writing staff kind of got themselves in a bit of a bind in terms of production. Because you, you hear a lot of stories about, like, plans that they had for Marita and what they wanted to do with the character. And it's always like, yeah, but, but you know, Laurie was busy. Um, so we had to do something else instead. But it does feel like when you're watching this episode, it's like, well, Mulder has another informant. And everything, like, even though X is dead, the story function that X fulfills is grand. So when Mulder has another case of the week that he can't crack and when he needs some more exposition given to him, he'll just send another signal up into the atmosphere. Maybe it won't be an X in the windowsill, but it'll be close enough and it'll serve the same story function. And that's kind of what's frustrating about like Heronvoke. And to be honest, what's frustrating for about some of the other mythology episodes in the fourth season as a whole, in particular the ones that are coming up next, is a sense of like running in place if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. And it, it's interesting as well, isn't it, that Marita only really fulfills that function this season because by the time you get to Zero Sum, she's far more, you know, um, twirl the moustache villainess, you know, in some respects. And it's a little, you know, they, they never really did that with, with you know, when, when X gets in that car with the smoking man, it, it makes sense. But at the same time, you never really feel like he's, 
he's always been one of them in a weird way. Whereas with Marita, you know, you almost get the feeling that she was, she was placed there just to be the smoking man's sort of eyes and ears. And I don't know, it just, it's never the same. It's never the same with her. And they never seem to really figure that out either. It doesn't quite work. And so by the time you get to season five, you know, she's, she's just, you know, off having it away with Krychek, then that's it. You know, it's, 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 she's not that character anymore. She's just one of the syndicate people. So it, that really season four is the last season you properly get the informant character. And I think with X gone, it's just that, that kind of went out the window as well. It does. That's, oh, how special that was, you know. It does, but it's, it's weird because while that happens, and you're right that, like, Marita evolves into a completely different character. And I, I, like, I'll go to bat, I think, like, Patient X and, and The Red and the Black are some of the best episodes of the show ever. And I'm just positioning myself as somebody who may want to talk about those episodes for a long period of time, Tony. In case you mm. happen to, you know, in case that happens to come up, I'm just throwing that idea out there. Mm. Um, <laughs> but, uh, like... Marita does evolve into a different character, but it's very clear that at the end of Heronvoke, the writers, I don't imagine that they had that arc in mind for her when I'm watching the episode, because it seems like it's just like, meet the new informant, same as the old informant, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, it's it feels a little bit of an interchange. And I suppose, you know, that's, like we say, that sort of sums, sums up Heronvoke neatly, really. It's... Running in place. I think that's a very good way of, of putting it. Running in place, really. Can I can I just actually just very quickly because I, I don't want to sure. I don't want to be mean, Tony. I want to like end on like a positive note and say like you know. Go on then. Just very quickly, some things that Darren liked about Heronvoke. A list. The list may have only two items on it. Uh, but you know, <laughs> no, I'm kidding because I really like that American sort of wilderness stuff. But I mean, even things like I really like the use of the bees, for example, which is while they make no sense like in terms of plot and while their function is sort of lost. Thematically, the bees work rather well. We talked about this. This is the thing where Carter was saying about, like, you know, we were talking about, like, Carter and the idea of Mulder having that clear character arc and clear motivation that helps you get through the episode. The bees also work in that sense that they work thematically rather than literally. And that, like, what are the bees doing there? Uh, And you can't really explain that in terms of plot logic yet. It's like, ah, bees are doing stuff and making people die and things. Uh, pollen, I guess, or something like that. And, you know, later on, it's like <laughs> smallpox. Uh, also, maybe baby aliens. I don't know. Um, but, like, in terms of theme, the bees work rather well because you've had this whole thing in the previous episode where you've talked about, like, the colonists essentially being drones, being interchangeable. You have this idea of the five uh, Jeremiah Smiths who exist within the Census Bureau and the idea that they are literally colonists, colonists coming from a colony. And, like, even here you have that hegemony, the idea of, like, the origin of species, but even the idea of, like, the Aryan and the Heronvoke, but the idea that, like, what you're going to be seeing in, like, the future that's controlled by these aliens is a stripping away of identity, personality, diversity, and anything that makes you unique, and instead, like, having clones and clones of children, like a beehive or a colony. And so the bees work well as a metaphor in that sense, sort of thematically, and I really like that about the episode. And I'm not being just glib or cynical or wry, because, I, I, you know, I have been a bit... I've kicked the episode much like that kid kicks the corpse, but, like, I, I do honestly believe that that's a really great thing, and I really 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 adore that part of the episode and again there's a really small thing that comes up thematically and it's tied into stuff the x-files does rather well i'll be very quick on this but it's this idea of 
missing parents um, and like the the idea of like a generation failing their kids and it's something that's rooted very much in the 70s and what the show is very concerned about is this idea that like parents you know parents failing their kids or failing to prepare their kids for the world or disappointing their kids you know the idea that like Bill Mulder and the cigarette smoking man betrayed an entire generation of their children um, in pursuit of their goals and assisting the project and even here you have this little village of children who are left to fend for themselves with no adults around, no adult supervision to take care of them. Um, and you have this idea of, like, Mulder actually literally asks who takes care of them. Jeremiah S- uh, Smith says, they take care of themselves. Parenting is unnecessary, a needless division of, of energy. And that kind of ties into, again, the X-Files are the product of, like, a generation that was dealing with things like, say, the emergence of no-fault divorce and, like, latchkey kids. And, like, a generation that had been raised by television rather than, say, their parents. And, like, the social fears that were associated with that, which I really, really liked. And even things like the protect the mother, the idea that Mulder... Like, you have X telling Scully to protect the mother because Mulder has run off on this crazy quest. Not only has Mulder ditched Scully, he's also... And again, like, Jeremiah Smith points out, he can't just take Jeremiah to his mother because there's a trap there. But Mulder has, to a certain extent, sort of run off on his mother and abandoned her. And so you have that sense of, like, generational abandonment playing through that as well. I like that thematically. Sorry, this has been Darren's things that he likes about Heron Bogdaner. <laughs> I hope that you enjoyed listening. Sorry, Tony. Um, that's a nice that's a nice way to wrap up heron boat the deep dive into heron boat i like that we've, we've got some listener feedback before before we fully before we fully head off now people people in the facebook group will laugh because i completely forgotten to ask for listener feedback until about 40 minutes into our conversation, Darren, and then I quickly <laughs> got on Facebook and I was like, oh, uh, yes, can you be quick? Give me some feedback. And to the credit of our wonderful community <laughs> on the Facebook group, that we've had quite a few responses and they've they've done it quite quickly. Some really good Listeners ones. Listeners will be pleased to hear people. that myself and Tony spent a full 40 minutes in a car journey getting to this podcast. And we never <laughs> once talked about this. Um, we never, we know exactly, exactly. So we, you know, we've got, we've got some, we've got some good listener feedback. So we'll pick through a little bit of this. Kathy Glinsky, good old Kathy G, says, "Hi Kathy." Uh, in a rec- hi, hi Kathy. In a recent rewatch of this episode, I was struck by Mulder's misplaced guilt over his family's destruction. He ditched Scully to go after Smith to heal his mother. He offered the bounty hunter his life in exchange for Smith to save her. And he tried to bring his mother a little girl to replace the one she lost. He was devastated by his failure to accomplish any of that. It tells us a lot about Mulder that he holds himself responsible for things he had no control over. That's a great that's a great little piece of analysis, I think. It sort of builds off some of the things we've said, but really really insightful. And and absolutely, and like and Mulder is, and I think people do in general. I think that a lot of people try to like take responsibility. I mean, like I, I know personally, I take responsibility for things that objectively I know are not my fault, but emotionally I feel like they are. And again, that that gets to the core of like one of the themes of the X Files, which is this idea of the '90s and a world kind of spiraling out of control. And like the thing about conspiracy theory, and it runs through the season. And it's worth noting that the fourth season like plays with this idea of conspiracy theory, most obviously in like Music of Cigarette Smoking Man, but also even in kind of little ways with like Gethsemane at the end of the season. Uh, where you have this idea that like conspiracy theory is appealing to people because it allows the world to make sense and to like allow it to like explain things that are random and arbitrary and cruel and like to a certain extent that's what the conspiracy kind of allows Mulder to do it allows him to make sense of things that are 
random and arbitrary. And we talked to like, uh, you know, I was talking about like latchkey kids and no fault divorce, but it's, it is very much like the conspiracy allows Mulder to explain and to understand and to place a quantifiable reason on his parents' divorce, to pick an example, and the mysterious disappearance of his sister. Um, and those are things that like happen to people all the time. People have families that have broken up. People lose relatives at, at a young age or any age, to be entirely honest. And want a reason to search for it. And like Mulder has that. And and it's one that, again, we talked about like the emotional through line of the show being really strong. Even in an episode like this where the plotting isn't necessarily as tight. And I, re- I really like that about it. I think it's great. I think it's very effective. Mm. Yeah, it really is. I, I, I completely agree there. James Driver says, I feel, and again, this is sort of off the back of some of the stuff we've said. I feel like Carter was very much torn between this and the beginning of Millennium with his new show being the strongest season premiere. I love the imagery of the farm and the idea of the clone kids as drones and the bees. The bees! The bees! <laughs> Not the bees! Feel, Not the bees! That James, that's got to be where you were going with this. Um, <laughs> always happy to see the bounty hunter. I need to know the reasons why this must be, which is obviously what he says at the end to the smoking man. Tone is strange and bleak and doesn't feel like any other season opener, which is cool, but the promise of answers that are simply... Um, re-promised and re-promised and the overlong chase with cool Mark Snow industrial clanging yeah I quite like that as well um, kind of makes the episode feel a little empty awesome revelations discovered by Scully her and Pendrel working together is always cool so yeah I like it it's an oddity with some cool images and ideas and marks the beginning of one of my favourite seasons it's a nice little sum up there and I, th- I think that's that's it it's, it's a nice I think James has got a nice balance there of the things that do and don't work really with the episode um Ali Gordon finally says, quotes one thing that Scully says, nothing happens in contradiction to nature, only in contradiction to what we know of it. So that's a place to start. That's where the hope is. One of my favourite quotes ever of the X-Files. Mulder is very in character. Ditching Scully to a possibly a bounty hunter and then telling her he's fine was not one of his <laughs> finest moments. <laughs> true. Mulder is very the true, worst. Ali. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he's the worst. He is the worst. I love him, but he's um, the worst. <laughs> he is the worst. The young clones were not scary. It felt less scary than a nice trip to the forest. X's death was a shock that I hated then, but I find good now. Um, for once, um, talking about characters' death in the show. I like the opposition between everything dies from the bounty hunter and not everything dies Mr. Mulder from Marita, which we mentioned earlier. Marita echoes Scully's quote and hope. Uh, looking back, I feel a softness and hope about it, opposing violence and darkness. It is in my favourite season openings. Interesting that, in that, you know, it's maybe I was wrong when I said a lot of people don't really love Heron Vogue as an opener. Maybe, maybe it's got more fans than I gave it credit for, really. I told you, Tony, what do we know? We've just yeah, talked well, for yeah, an well, hour and a half, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what the hell What the hell do we know? It's like, it's from, it's like from Jose Chung. How the hell should I know? <laughs> like, what the hell do we know? Um, <laughs> a great way to sort of end the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. What the hell do we know? Um... But yeah, thanks, thanks, guys. Thanks to any of you um, who um, got some feedback in. We really appreciate it. Um, even if I'm really late, re- this is this is this is a record of how late I've been to post for a mailbag. Absolute halfway through recording the episode. So well done, guys, for oh, some really great really analysis. Are, yeah. They were really good considering I asked for it like half an hour ago. Well, they weren't really so good well, considering sorry. they were really good. They were just really yeah, well, yeah, yeah, just really insightful. So um, cheers, guys. So yeah, that's it then. That's it for the uh, the premiere of season four. Um, 
of the X-Files and the X-Cast, obviously, because this is a whole new season. We've been off off air for a few months, really, apart from the odd episode here and there, the odd roundtable, the odd um, special interview episodes. Um, but uh, we're back now, weekly, until uh, probably around September, October time, covering all of season four. We've got some additional little episodes coming as well. Um, we've got some fun little uh, 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 pieces there uh, that will be slotted in. We've got some cool interviews. We've got Karen Conoval back on the show. We've got Kristen Cloak Morgan back on the show, um, which will be tying into some of the uh, episodes that they're focusing on. So, like, amazing. And, um, yeah, and um, the field where I died. I know that Sarah. Blair, these are both with Sarah Blair. She both interviewed both of them, and um, I, I, yeah, I think she got some great stuff from Kristen Cloak. We'll have Benjamin Van Allen back on the show, writer of Familiar. Um, he's talking with Carl Sweeney about Paper Hearts, which is going to be good fun. We've got we've got some new guests as well this this uh, this year. We've got Sarah Stegall, who is uh, well known in the X Files fan community. Right, great yeah, writer, been long her involved. Are amazing. Yeah, she's she's brilliant. She's she's on for a couple of episodes. Um, we've got uh, a few a few patrons who've been on some of the other shows, like um, Dina Ferreri, who you recorded Never Again with re- relatively Dina's recently, amazing. didn't you, Darren? Yeah. Which is it's re- I feel yeah, really bad Dina's that Dina's amazing because I can't say well I would ne- I record with her Never Again. I would record with her anytime. She's amazing. <laughs> she's really, really great. Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. So we got some we got some really good guests. We've got plenty of great returning guests. You know, we've got Carl, we've got Sarah, we've got. Kurt North doing quite a few. We've got um, uh, Andrew Brooker's on with me for one. Uh, we've got Chris Knowles back as ever with some. We've got another wonderful sort of deep dive, like he did with Oublier. We've got him doing Paper Hearts. It's going to be amazing. And going into some really big holes. But yeah, some really good holes with that. So yeah, we've got some. Yeah, he's, he's ace. So we've got some great. Um, we've got some great. Uh, Guests, including obviously yourself, Darren. You're back for quite a few as well, so that's brilliant. Yeah, I'm contractually um, bound here. It's fantastic. Tony can't fire me. I'm not going away. If you're going, I'm going with you, and we're going to Canada. That's 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 how, that's what's going to happen. We'll share an awkward car um, journey where we don't talk about anything. <laughs> and uh, obviously, as well, coming up very very shortly, premiering in just over a week, we've got finally. It's finally here. The time is now. Our Millennium spin-off series. It's been in the in the making for ages for absolutely ages and ages and ages but it's finally happening kurt north is showrunning that for us you and i darren did the pilot we're on you're on a few more episodes um as well and there's uh it's it's good it's the same format as the x cast and it's going to be it's going to be great it's going to be really good we've also got some cool interviews we've got like megan gallagher who plays awesome. Catherine black on the show we've got bill smitrovich who plays bob Fletcher. all these really good people yeah yeah lovely people great to talk to so yeah it's it's gonna be it's gonna be great if you're a fan of the x cast then i encourage you to listen to the time is now because if you're a millennium fan you're gonna absolutely love it if you're not a millennium fan it's a great way into a show that i would really encourage you because when it's great it's as good as the x files yeah. that's a, that's so, a very good qualification there tony but um no no yeah. it is I, I agree entirely i'd be like Again, I'm really excited about the time is now, but the great thing about the time is now is it's an opportunity to discover Millennium because Millennium is massively Absolutely. like underrated. And again, the X Files is like the love the X Files gets is fantastic, and Millennium has its own like wonderful fan base as well. It's amazing, but it's mm. always it's it's a great it's just one of my favorite shows. The second season of Millennium is one of my favorite twenty odd episode seasons of television ever, and the first season is amazing when it kicks into gear. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 brilliant. So. Yeah, keep an eye out for that on uh, We Made This, the podcast network that we're all part of. Um, so uh, keep an eye out. And um, 
you'll be back soon, Darren, obviously for season four. But until then, um, you've got plenty. You've got plenty going on. Um, tell us about what you're up to and where people can find you. Uh, cool. So um, you can find me on Twitter, Darren Rosecrimini. I've written a, a couple of books as well. I've written about the X Files and I've written about Christopher Nolan. But uh, many people have probably like know these already. I, I plug them every time I'm on. Um, and thank you very much again. The support for those is absolutely incredible. Um, I co-host another podcast called the Two Fifty, uh, which takes a look at the IMDb's top two hundred fifty movies of all time. Uh, one movie at a time. I don't know when this podcast is roughly going out, Tony, when the schedule releases for Heron. In about a week. Okay. A week and a bit. So great. We can, very close. We can keep this very fresh <laughs> and relevant. I can actually tell you what's coming up. Um, so in terms of uh, podcast episodes that'll be coming up as this is released, we'll be doing our annual anime April season, uh, which is great because awesome alliteration is fantastic. Uh, but we'll be covering some of the Japanese animated <laughs> films on the, on the list with our anime-esque experts, including the wonderful Graham Day and Marion Cassidy. This year... We're taking a break from Studio Ghibli to discuss non-Ghibli movies on there, including um, Hayao Mazaki's uh, Nausicaa in the Valley of the Wind, which predates uh, the existence of Studio Ghibli, but also Akira, the 1988 sort of Japanese animated classic. Then, as we reach the end of the month, we'll be segueing neatly. We'll be having the wonderful Phil Bagnall in joining us to talk about The Avengers, the one, the only classic Avengers, and absolutely no other film that's called The Avengers. Um, and then, hopefully, with a bit of luck, Tony, if we can find some time in our schedule, or your schedule, and, you know, if our contract with you is ironclad, because we negotiate those terms very strongly, we may be able to drag you back uh, to talk about Avengers Avengers Endgame when it inevitably makes the list, assuming that you didn't disappear uh, with the snap, Tony. If I if I was snapped out of existence, well, you know, I'm happy to you know join join the fight. Um, you know, whatever it takes, Darren, whatever it takes um, to take down Thanos, yeah, I'm there. Just just tell me when. You're the Steve Rogers to my Hawkeye, apparently. I've done well out of that actually. Although, hmm, maybe not. Maybe my time is limited. We shall see. I'm just rocking um, a mullet. <laughs> that's brilliant that's great stuff i mean um you know you you guys most of you listening will have hopefully listened to the 250 by now also it would be remiss of me to mention darren the fact that you this month or the end of last month did a version of the x cast live in that for charity you did a uh a, a twin peaks the return marathon podcast i blatantly um, stole raised... your idea um yeah. no, unashamedly <laughs> yeah. and unapologetically you... no was, uh, tony was a huge inspiration for this and i actually should i we thank him on the show as well and and we credit him as well and he was really good at giving advice for this as well really really vital advice including things like eat lots of carbohydrates <laughs> stay alive <laughs> <laughs> drink lots of water yeah. like the actual important stuff um which was great and no tony really was fantastic but it was the x-cast live which was an inspiration again if anybody listened to the x-cast live I am in awe of it. I was in awe of it listening to it. And as somebody who, like, struggled to keep his head above water doing, like, literally three quarters of the thing that you did, I am even more in awe of the X-Cast Live. It's a staggering accomplishment. I think the first hour is available well, to listen you. for anybody who's listening, but your patrons have access to the full 24, and there's some really great stuff in there. The Glenn yes. Morgan, um, Kristen Cloak interview is is amazing, and, and one of the highlights mm. of the things that I've heard from the X-Cast. And given the quality of the stuff that's on here, that, that's saying something entirely. But yeah, we, we did, uh, we blatantly ripped off your concept um, to do, to raise money for the Irish <laughs> Cancer Society. We did like an 18-hour live podcast covering Twin Peaks The Return. The idea being... Is Twin Peaks The Return an 18-hour movie? Well, the only way to properly discuss that is an 18-hour podcast. 
And we managed to rope in a bunch of very talented uh, people with very insightful sort of observations, including, for example, the the star of the show, Amy Shields, who is the Irish actor who plays Candy. Uh, she came along for an hour and she had Owen Reese davies with her and it was, it was fantastic. But we also had things like uh, Donald Clark, the chief critic of the Irish Times, the, the Irish paper of record, came in to talk about Lynch's filmography. We had some of the writers from various Irish websites uh, come in to debate whether or not it was a TV show or a film, whereas the Irish Times, uh, Entertainment.ie. we had like uh, the, the wonderful Karina Camerino from the Camerino Bakery in Dublin uh, came in to offer two stage pieces of observation. First of all, to talk about Food and Twin Peaks, but also to warn myself and my co-host three hours into the podcast, we probably shouldn't eat that much cherry pie. Um, but no, it, it really was great. The first 11 hours are actually available to listen to and to stream if you want to try them out. There's some really great stuff on there. I'm, I'm very proud of how it turned out, if only because we, we managed to assemble a group of very talented people. Um, there was a dream, Tony. Of a very special group of people who had come together in a time of crisis. But we did also raise some money for charity. And also, if you are thinking about donating to charity, you can still donate. Uh, the page is still up there. But even if you just want to donate to, to charity in general, you can. I would wholeheartedly recommend that as well. Uh, we're hoping to get the full 18 hours up. But at the moment, the first 11 are up there for your listening delectation. It's just a, a brilliant achievement, you know. And, and I think Twin Peaks obviously has got a... It's a big influence in many ways on the X-Files. You know, there's, there's definite connective DNA between the two. So, you know, I think if 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 you're not, if you haven't traditionally listened to the 250, then I think this is a great, in its own way, it's a great entry point for that really great podcast. So, you know, go back, go and listen to it, guys. It's fantastic. Amazing achievement, raising some brilliant money. So, you know, kudos to you guys because you did a great job. There's also something Absolutely very Lynchian job. when we reach about 3.30 in the morning and sort of are just rambling <laughs> incoherently. It's great. <laughs> no it was fantastic but yeah you'll be back very soon i think your next appearance on the xcast is uh Unruhe, which uh which is which is which is a good one i think you're with carl on that one so that'll be good that'll be good fun in a couple of weeks so um check that out guys thanks again darren it's been great to talk to you again we'll be we'll be back talk we'll be back again i think we're we're top and tailing this season we're doing the the season finale as well gethsemane so uh it'd be a bit of a while but we'll be back so i'll be back next week i'm i'm not on the show less this season i'll be honest i'm doing a chris carter this year you know i'm uh i'm sort of juggling all kinds of different things so i'm on i'm on home next week which is sort of like a re-air in a way because it's an old episode we've repurposed but uh then I won't be back till the finale, probably. So it's, um, but you've got, like I say, you've got a ton of people keeping you, keeping you, uh, uh, keeping you going. So uh, I'll be back eventually. But uh, yeah, thanks again for listening. Welcome to season four. We're back, and remember, as always, everything dies, or not, maybe. The X Cast and X Files podcast is produced and hosted by Tony Black, alongside a dedicated team of podcasters and X-Files fans. You can find the show on Twitter at the X underscore cast, on Facebook by typing in the X-Cast, or inside our group, the X-Files Basement, an X-Cast podcast fan group, plus on Instagram by typing in the XFCast. If you're a fan of the show, why not support us on Patreon? Exclusive bonus episodes, early access to new episodes... Plus, become part of our XCast community in the Patreon department. To see our monthly subscription options, just head to patreon.com forward slash the XCast. That's P A T R E O N.com forward slash the XCast. We'd love to see you join our Patreon community. We're also part of the We Made This Podcast Network at We Made This Pod on Twitter and We Made This on Facebook. 
You can find a range of shows on TV, film, music and popular culture in general on the network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.